Dear fellow redeemed. If your high school science teachers were any like mine, you probably had a little bit of a variety. Maybe there was the teacher who had been doing it for 20, 30, 40 years. In my case, my biology teacher and my physics teacher also had my parents <laughs> in class. Maybe it was the, the teacher who had been doing it for quite some time and, and they had their routine down and maybe they had a bit of a reputation. And then you had maybe some other teachers like my chemistry teacher who had a bag of tricks, so to speak. A bag of tricks to try to maintain all the attention of these, these high schoolers who had nothing better to do than ignore what he was trying to teach them. And one of those bag of tricks was, was just the use of humor. And he had, he had things like um, tossing a balloon to a, a child, or a student, rather, when they asked, oh, are we going to blow anything up today? He said, sure, here you go. He would toss them a balloon. Go ahead. But one that kind of sticks out in my mind is a, a somewhat tongue-in-cheek bumper sticker that he had pasted on his door. As you walk into the classroom, pretty much every day, here's this in, in bright, flashy primary colors, asking the question, what in the world isn't chemistry? What in the world isn't chemistry? Obviously a play on the question that, you know, the, the first day student, what in the world is chemistry? Well, realistically, everything is chemistry because he would be able to explain in, in mathematical notation or whatever, whatever he tried to teach us that I've forgotten in 15 years since. But he would explain for us exactly the chemical composition of, of for instance, the wood of the chairs that we were sitting on or the water in the water glasses at our table because he was reinforcing for us that chemistry really is relevant to your daily life because you interact with it every day. Whether it's the, the water that you drink or the hydrogen peroxide up in the, the cabinet or in his case, <laughs> the alcohol that was actually vodka that he used to clean the whiteboard. He had an explanation for everything. And Paul takes up a similar question a similar question in our reading from Ephesians chapter 6. In this closing chapter, the closing words, and there's really only two verses at the end of the chapter that we didn't read, as he takes up the closing chapter, the closing question of the Ephesians. What in the world isn't a spiritual matter? Kind of the same idea. What in the world isn't a spiritual matter? And even more bluntly, what in the world isn't a spiritual battle? And you think about that, and you might think to yourself, well, maybe just the simple fact of putting food on the table and, and punching the clock. But is that a spiritual matter? Well, definitely. Because as a Christian who has been set apart, you can say, whatever my vocation is, whatever my occupation is, this was chosen by God for me to provide for the people in my life and to provide for my needs. What in the world isn't a spiritual matter? Maybe, you know, talk about raising children. Well, each and every day, perhaps multiple times a day, there is the application of law and gospel. How do I address this behavior and encourage good behavior? Each and every day, 
there's that responsibility lingering in the back of our minds as Moses talked about in the book of Deuteronomy about passing on the faith to those entrusted to our care. What in the world isn't a spiritual matter? I think if we, we thought for quite some time, chances are we could come up with something that we think might fit, you know, like um, you know, professional golf in Toledo. Is that a spiritual matter? Well, not really. But in a broader, broader picture, you might think of your own stewardship of time and whatever hobbies you might choose to pursue and whatever hobbies you might choose to develop. Recognizing that the Lord is the one who gave you both your time here on earth as well as the ability to enjoy these hobbies or pursue them or become quite good at them. C.S. Lewis, in, um, in his probably his simplest book, it, it's a book that's simple enough that I've handed it to um, a couple of different like eighth graders at confirmation time. The book is called The Screwtape Letters. And it includes a mythical um, one-way, one-side of a conversation where this, um, this older demon is teaching his apprentice demon how to, how to tempt people on earth. And I have a couple of copies. I think they're both at home right now. But if you want to borrow one, just let me know. Anyway, this is what he said. He said, as this condition becomes more fully established, you will gradually be freed from the tiresome business of providing pleasures as temptations. And writing as, as the perspective of a demon, an older, um, older mentor, teaching the younger apprentice, he's talking about the condition of forgetting about the Lord's word and being swept along by the distractions of this world. And he says, as this condition, forgetting about the Lord and being swept along, as this condition becomes more established, you will be freed from providing pleasures as temptation. As the uneasiness and his reluctance to face it cut him off more and more from all real happiness, and as the habit renders the pleasures of vanity and excitement at once less pleasant and harder to give up, you'll find that anything or nothing is sufficient to attract his wandering attention. Now, obviously, he writes and he sounds like he's writing from 80 years ago at, at a, a level of English that doesn't parse out really well in a sermon. But to put it a different way, he's saying that as you, as you begin to distract people from the reality of the spiritual battle, once they start buying into that, the demon won't have to work as hard. Once, once the person buys into the idea that life is for their own pleasure and for their own profit and for their own gain, it doesn't take too much effort to keep that ball rolling down the hill. It might take a little bit of effort and extra temptation to, to distract that person from their Lord at the beginning. But then as time progresses, it becomes simpler and simpler. And he says, you know, after a while, it doesn't take anything. It doesn't take anything to really keep that ball moving. Because once you've got it rolling, once you've got that person rolling away from their Lord, well, anything would suffice. Which comes around to that question again. What in the world isn't a spiritual matter? Paul puts it like this. 
Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can stand against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the world rulers of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against rulers, authorities, and powers, really different terms for different spiritual forces and spiritual beings that are opposed to you, dear Christian. And so the question that we really have to consider as we wrap up today, thinking about your identity as a Christian, the fact that you've been set apart from eternity, that you've been brought to faith and kept in faith to this day. Thinking about the fact that you are, by virtue of your baptism, you are different from every other person who does not know Christ. Having all this in the background, do you agree with Paul? Do you agree with Paul? For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, authorities, and world rulers of this darkness. Do you agree with Paul that our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but rather it's a spiritual battle? Because chances are, if you've ever felt any, any shred of frustration in your life, or even if you've ever experienced anything resembling sorrow or despair, or as C.S. Lewis kind of points out for us, if you have ever engaged in any sort of activity that brought you joy in this life, do you agree with Paul that our struggle is not against flesh and blood? Because it's easy. It's easy to say this is a flesh and blood struggle. It's easy to say my coworker is the one who is making life difficult for me. And my coworker is the one who, who um, would ridicule me for the fact that I don't want to work on particular days that are Christian holidays. It's easy to say it looks like a flesh and blood struggle right now because that person is the one saying these things. It's easy enough to say it looks like a flesh and, blo flesh and blood struggle right now because the doctor told me it was a diagnosis. The doctor told me, this is, this is your diagnosis and here's what we're gonna to do to treat it. And yes, maybe it is a physical malady. That's the result of life in a sinful world, that our bodies break down and they get sick and diseased. But the real struggle isn't the replacement that needs to happen, isn't the surgery that needs to take place. The real struggle is behind it that Satan wants to use every opportunity to pull you away from your Lord. That Satan wants to use every opportunity to make you think that either God does not care about you or that God has forgotten you. Or that, you know, this sort of thing isn't supposed to happen to good people like me. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood. Our struggle is not against flesh and blood when it comes to, when it comes to even raising our children. It looks like a flesh and blood struggle because the arguments are, are in words and the discussions are about actual actions and activities. But what is the prompting cause behind it? A heart that 
is a factory for idols. A heart that says, I don't want to listen to what my Lord has to say or to what his appointed representatives have to say because I know better. Our struggle is not against flesh and blood. And so Paul goes on. Paul goes on. He says, dear Christian, do you see the reality of the world around you? It's almost as though, you know, the devil doesn't need apprentices. He's enough of an expert himself. But when we see the spiritual reality that undergirds or tries to encroach upon every situation and every scenario of life, when we understand the spiritual reality that our Lord unveils for us, we begin to see why he is so serious about his word. And we begin to see why he is so serious there in Deuteronomy about talking about this truth. And most of all, most of all, the rest of this beautiful section from Ephesians chapter 6, we see the beautiful reality of the armor that he has given to you and to me. Because he hasn't just said, well, go on, good luck. <laughs> it's a spiritual battle out there. He says, and here's your clothing. Here's your battle gear. And if you look at the list, absolutely everything on down the list is something defensive that the Lord has given to you, that the Lord has placed upon you. The belt of truth, obviously the, the truth of the Lord's word, which cuts through all the lies of this world. The truth of God's word, which shapes your mind and keeps you thinking as somebody who is different than the world around us. The feet fitted with the readiness of the gospel of peace. A readiness that he has given to say, hey, here's a place where I can speak up. Here's a place. Here's a place to be able to reach out and to at least demonstrate in some tangible way the love of Jesus for me. And that breastplate of righteousness, you might call it, you know, the, the body armor of righteousness. He's not talking about your goodness or your righteousness or your holiness. Because if he were, he would contradict the whole rest of the book. And he would be saying, dear Christian, make sure that you do make every effort to keep yourself acting well so that you can stand strong against the devil. He's not saying that. The breastplate of righteousness, that, that swat vest of righteousness, is the righteousness of Jesus given to you. That you stand before God in righteousness and holiness forever. And that the devil's accusations and attempts and temptations are utterly extinguished by your status in God's eyes. That you are a forgiven child of God that you've been declared righteous and that any accusation he might have doesn't stick. Any, any word that the devil might suggest as though to say you don't measure up or that, that God has forgotten about you or that there is reason for sorrow and unending despair, all of that is swept aside with the truth of that breastplate of righteousness. And we've got a shield. Verse 16, at all times hold up the shield of faith with which you are able to extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Talking about that faith, it's not just your own personal trust. It's also the content of that faith. 
what is it that our faith holds on to? The facts of our faith, which we reiterate and look at, you know, different segments of it every Sunday. The facts of our faith that show us, you know, the creation of all people at the beginning of time. The facts of our faith, which are there to, to contradict and counteract all the lies of this world. But then he gets to that, that one offensive weapon. The sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Now that's all we've got. That's all we've got, and we hold it together, and it's more than enough. <clears throat> to think of it this way, we've talked a little bit about, um, about Zion Congregation joining together with us, and last I heard, you know, last week, that is progressing well, and, and if um, all the legal and, uh, and real estate details fall into place, it will probably be finalized at the end of October, early November, and we'll have a better date once, once we get a little closer. What in the world isn't a spiritual battle? As this congregation who has a long history of you know, over 100 years of, of Christian education and of you know, having moved three times, I think, two or three times, um, before this move to join us, there would certainly be enough temptation to, to fall into kind of like an us and them mentality. A spiritual battle. Take, for instance, we talked about this this past Friday in our Bible class, our 1 p.m. Bible class in the book of James, FYI. In Bible class on Friday, we talked about the discussion of, of cliques within a church because James talks about that in um, the beginning of James chapter 2. Um, talks about like groups within a church that kind of glom together. And we spent most of you know, half an hour talking about this. And there were a couple of different aspects that I wanted to share and that, that were worth bringing out. Because on the one hand, you know, are, there, are there cliques that develop within a church? Well, maybe. Maybe there are people who have been worshiping together for 15 or 20 years who, who raised their children together who were there when, when a spouse died or when there was a marriage in the family, who have spent life together for 20 years. I don't know that I would call that a clique, so to speak, because that idea of a clique is kind of like the high school mentality of you're not one of us. But there's that natural reality that, that people who have a shared experience together have a whole lot of you know, trust and vulnerability between them. The other side of that would be perception. That the perception that, well, I don't fit in with them because I don't know them, I don't have the history with them, and there's not that same level of trust and vulnerability that we have together. What in the world isn't a spiritual battle? As Jesus continues to build a unified church at this place, a unified congregation at this place, it would be very simple for the lies of the devil to get on, on the sides. To get in on the sides about, about you know, my own importance at this place or the other person's lack of experience at this place. So take up the sword of faith, the shield of faith, and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Because our struggle is not against flesh and blood. That as we work toward merging together and saying what's the next step of ministry that we can take together 
there's tremendous opportunity in this area. What else can we do? You need to keep in mind that this is not a struggle against flesh and blood because even the merging of two congregations that have a combined, what, 140, 170 years of history, the merging of two congregations is not a matter of flesh and blood and not a matter of simple human logistics and planning and plotting. But it's a spiritual endeavor which Jesus himself must carry out. And so it takes. It takes Christians who have that same humility to stand up together and say, uh, as we all say right at the beginning of the worship service, I confess that I have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed. That I am here worshiping the same Jesus that God's church around the world has worshipped for all time. And I'm here because there are people who are engaged in a spiritual battle that they are entirely not equipped for. And I'm here because maybe even our little congregation can help bring some peace to that battle and that warfare. Or the other example, um, out in the entryway, you know, we've got, got a lot of paper out there, and I don't mean to overload you with, with so much paper all at once. There's the table with the, the directories um, or the, the, the survey about serving in God's church and um, trying to carry out some of the tasks that we want to do together. Or if you have your smartphone, you can go to bit.ly slash rwjserving, R-W-J-S-E-R-V-I-N-G because you are equipped with the exact same divine tools that God has given to his people. And God wants us to put those tools to use together. Maybe, maybe you're like, well, pastor, that sounds a little, a little bit of a stretch for me. Well, can you hand somebody a bulletin and say, welcome to resurrection? That might entail, you know, showing up to church at 8.40 instead of 8.50, but I think you can do that. Or I guess the, the final piece of paper would be this guy. Unless I haven't had your address updated yet, you'll be getting a postcard like this in your mail sometime in the next two weeks. And on the back side, it's going to detail our family Bible hour, which begins on September 26th. So even though the front may be familiar when it shows up in your mailbox, be sure to read the back. Because we've got a good 45 minutes between service when we can have as many people as possible gathered together for a brief children's lesson. And then the children can stay with their parents or go with a Sunday school teacher to study that lesson. And then the adults can, or the, the grown-ups, confirmed members, whatever you want to say, can have a little bit further study of their own. Not because, not because, you know, 20 minutes or 35 minutes sitting with a bunch of kids and getting a very simple Bible story presented to you and then two or three questions discussing with your fellow Christians and your own Bible study, not because that in and of itself is just a tremendous buffet of, of knowledge for you to grow in, I'm not saying come because this is an absolutely incredible opportunity for you to grow in your faith. We'll have opportunities like that. But I'm saying come because God's army gathers together and needs to be equipped together. 
to set aside that time, whether it's um, staying after the service on September, September 26th, staying after the service and leaving about 11 o'clock, or if you're coming for 11 o'clock, then come for 10.15 and gather together. Why? Because our struggle is not against flesh and blood. And the tools that we use, yes, we may use some, some good practices from the world around us, such as you know, how to organize a church or how to communicate with our congregation or how to take a survey, right? We may use some of those good practices, but the real battle, the real battle doesn't begin or even end at those tools. The battle begins and ends with the fact that our struggle is not against flesh and blood. It's a spiritual battle. And our God alone is the one who must equip us all together. Amen.